Everything done here. Okay, are you guys ready? Sure. You gotta say, let's light this candle. Let's light this candle. <laughs> All right. I'm John Grace, and this is The Hammer Factor. I'm joined by my co-host, John Weld, a whitewater legend and owner of Immersion Research. Uh, welcome, John. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me uh, again. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. And <laughs> as well, we have Lewis Geltman, water polo champion and policy counsel for the Outdoor <laughs> Alliance. Um, Lewis, how you doing? Oh, I'm hanging in there. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good, man. It's uh, it's good to talk to you guys. And uh, we got our celebrity guest lined up today, so um, that's exciting. And uh, there's kind of a lot to talk about. And this is the way I see it. This is kind of going to be the the Lewis Geltman show. Um, oh man! In a way, finally. Um, <laughs> it's a lot of pressure. I don't know if I can carry more than well, a week into this conversation. First of all, be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Uh, we're up over 750 subscribers now, which is uh, exciting. So there's some people who appreciate our banter. I think we're getting a little better, uh, the three of us, as doing something that's uh, coherent in a way. Um, but let's, let's get right into our viewer mail. We love our viewer mail. Always appreciate it. And all of our viewer mail basically was directed towards Lewis. We had a few that weren't. Um, but we're going to go... Uh, we're going to go right into some, some viewer mail here that, that went to Lewis. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of things that have been going on. There's been alternative Twitter handles. Um, there's been, for all of the National Park Service places, there's been um, basically a, a freeze for people in the EPA, which I'm not sure. Is that a common practice? Has anybody ever heard of that? So we actually, somebody sent us this memo that it seems like has since gotten really widely leaked, but it was directed at the Department of Interior and it was about sort of their communications practices right now. And it was, uh, it was basically saying that the transition team needed to review any incoming correspondence from like national level environmental groups or recreation groups like specifically called out or industry or tribes or anyone basically. And like, we like saw this and like, it seems like, I don't know, like pretty nefarious given everything else that's going on. But, uh, it, it sounds like from what we hear that this is like actually, I mean, maybe it's taken a little bit further, but there's some element of sort of standard practice to this when there's a transition between administrations, like they're just trying to make sure that they're kind of like up on everything that the, the agency is saying or, you know, it's coming in and out. So like, I, it's, I'm concerned about it, but I'm, my expectation is that it'll be like relatively short lived. But, you know, I think that the stuff, the anti-science stuff, the idea that, you know, the EPA can't talk about climate change anymore. I mean, that stuff is like way, way, way more concerning to me. So, I mean, I think that there's a lot to be extremely wary about, I guess. I, I mean, know. has has that ever happened before? Has anybody in your organization ever seen anything like that? Um, I mean, it's getting a little bit, you know, like the EPA stuff and the climate change stuff is like a little bit, outside of our wheel well like we work much more with the land management agencies on like public land stuff than on stuff that has to do you know, like stuff that the epa handles which is more like pollution control 
like there's a bit of distinction there. Like, I mean, it's not to say that we don't care about this thing. It's just like, definitely we do. And we'll weigh in on things like the, you know, the rules implementing the clean water act and stuff like that. But I would say our organizational focus is much more on, on public lands. So, you know, and again, climate change is like another one of those things that's like, obviously it's a huge impact on all of us, but it's, it's, uh, it's just such a big thing that I think that we don't want to let that pull too much away from our other areas of work, I guess. Um, so like, I, I mean, I guess I recall like in the Bush administration, there were some, you know, some things that happened when, you know, political staff were reviewing the work of scientists and kind of changing, you know, things that were meant to be like objective scientific conclusions. And it was a huge scandal, right? And like to, that these guys are now kind of just starting with that as like, this is going to be our paradigm for managing the work of scientists, like right out of the gate. I think that to me is a little more shocking, I guess. But I don't know, I'm kind of, I feel a little out of my depth on that one. Yeah, I've, I'm a little taken aback by it, but I'm. But at the same time, I want to keep an open mind. I'm like, is this something that happens when new administrations? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm not. You know, there are people out there who are like, oh, let's give these guys a chance. And again, I'm just speaking for myself here, not for OA. But you know, I'm not in the like, give these guys a chance school. I'm not in the like, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. But I do want to make sure that when we tell people the sky is falling, like the sky is falling. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So like when there are things that are happening that are, you know, medium bad or just normal, like let's talk about it, but let's make sure that we're not being alarmist because the time is going to come when it's going to be like all hands on deck for things that are legitimately really bad. And I, I don't want to like burn out everybody's outrage by, uh, being alarmist you know yeah yeah you don't want to jump the gun i i reached out to some people that i know that work in the epa and this is what i got um no one could talk to me on record i invited them to all come on the show and just give an inside perspective but i i did get that there is a uh some things that they haven't seen before is that uh they're reworking the website and basically hiding certain data that has been um, put on the website. This, they're, they're very concerned about that because the keys to all of the different websites where the data has been housed, it's been getting taken away. They're certainly uh, not allowed to talk to anybody. They think within 90 days that that will be lifted and the grants and things that they fund will be able to continue. Um, but they're definitely not sure what's going to happen. <laughs> You know, so um, I don't know. It seems it seems crazy to me, but the whole thing is crazy to me. So I don't I, I don't know. It's cool you made those calls, man. You're like a real journalist. <laughs> <laughs> hey, don't, don't give me don't give me too much credit. You know what I'm saying? He's like the Woodward and Bernstein of Whitewater. <laughs> well, you know, you, you, you see headlines and you read articles and. You're just like, wait a second. I just want to talk. I don't know about that. You know, I want to talk to somebody, and so that's what I try to do. And I talked to four different people, and because uh, I know there's a lot of, and they pretty much all were like, I don't want to talk to you, John. <laughs> You're gonna get me in trouble. 
I can see you're like Chelsea. Wake up. <laughs> this goes all the way to the top. <laughs> Connect the dots. <laughs> Just follow the money. Uh, <laughs> all right. So back to our viewer mail. We got way off topic. Sorry to put you on the spot there, Lewis. But this one is directed towards you. Uh, this comes at us from Larry Boothby. Um, great show. I was thinking about Lewis dealing with the DC crowd in the congressional hearings. Um, I was wondering if the Outdoor Alliance... I got a 360 camera, Lewis. Can you take it in one of those meetings and record it? I don't know. Man, I'm going to give Maybe. it to you next time you go up there. It would be killer to do that. <laughs> um, anyway, I was wondering if the Outdoor Alliance folks had ever thought about getting some of the policy policymakers out on the water. Um, Doug Woodward, in his book, Wherever Water Flows, talks about the battle to get wild and scenic status for the Chattooga. They were able to enlist the help of then-Governor Jimmy Carter. The way they did it was put him in a kayak and teach him to boat. It worked, and Carter became a huge advocate for the Chattooga River and the boating community. There is a photo in Woodward's book of Jimmy Carter in a long fiberglass kayak running bulls loose. Hmm. Um, Shit runner. Big. I heard that, I heard Jimmy Carter had the sound of Bull Sluice in a tandem canoe, like in like a Grumman or something. <laughs> I don't know, but big hat tip to Larry Boothby. Thanks for the mail. Um, big hat tip to Jimmy Carter, man, running Bull Sluice <laughs> in a kayak. No, no joke. Come on. I, that's off the hook. He's, Good people, man. You're right. Um, yeah, he gave up his peanut farm because he thought it would be a conflict of interest. But we digress. Um, any thoughts in, in the Outdoor Alliance? Is, does any kind of thing like that ever get thrown around in your circles, Lewis? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's a really good idea. Uh, we do do that. Uh, AW kills it on that front. Uh, I know uh, Tom O'Keefe and, among others, organized a meeting with uh, one of the staffers for Jamie Herr Butler, who's the congresswoman for White Salmon over the summer and they like went out for a hike. They tried to get her out, but she was unavailable. But, and, uh, actually Max Blackburn went out with those guys and met with her Butler staff and just kind of got to give those guys the rap about, you know, the outdoor recreation economy and white salmon and how, you know, she might be inclined to think about national forests as something that, you know, produces timber or whatever, but, you know, these are places where, you know, there are guys like Russ showing up and starting film companies. There's guys like our buddy Yuri who are, you know, started a bakery and like all this kind of business and stuff is coming into town because, you know, basically because of kayaking and because of windsurfing and mountain biking and, you know, helping those people connect the dots on that stuff and like really see what's going on and getting outside and doing something with, you know, people in Congress or staff is like super good idea. We, uh, we try and make that happen, especially our, you know, our member organizations, I think are a little more active in that stuff than, than OA specifically, just cause we're, you know, much smaller staff. But, uh, I think that's a really good thought and, you know, definitely folks out there putting that into action. So it's good. Yeah. It seems like a Avenue for success. I mean, <laughs> But, it's like one of the things, you know, when we go to DC, it's like people are so happy to talk to us compared to like so many other interests. It's like we show up at these meetings and we're like, you know, talking about awesome places in these congressmen's district and going outside and like doing cool things. And like, you know, the rest of their day is, is like people showing up to talk about like, like healthcare policy or something. You know, <laughs> it's like, 
I think we have something that's like fun and cool and it's good to, to capitalize on that. Yep. Well, big shout out to, we love our viewer mail. It's always fun to uh, see what people, you know, what, what, what's spinning in their head. And, uh, well, you're awful quiet today. I'm just taking it all in. Yeah. I, I just think the politics going on right now are, are riveting. I can't, I can't get enough of it. Really? What's that? So you seem like you're riveted. <laughs> do you guys, you know, you, the viewers can't see this, but John, you look like you're like broadcasting from an igloo, man. You got a sock hat on, a, a hooded sweater, a giant down jacket. Well, times are tough here at IR. It's shut off the heat. <laughs> no, it's a piece of quiet here. I have to go upstairs to this office. That's that's not really heated. I put a space heater in here like a couple hours before we start, uh-huh. but it's still probably mid forties here. <laughs> well, should we uh, move on to our celebrity guest, guys? Sure. Is there anything? Yeah, else? A celebrity. All right. Yeah. All right, so um, this week we have Philip Curry, founder of Astral Designs uh, now, formerly the founder of Lotus. Um, And let's see if we can get Philip on here. John, give, while I'm doing this, give our viewers a little background on Philip. You've known Philip for a long time. I Philip Curry started Lotus Life Jackets sometime around the time we started IR, maybe a little earlier, maybe a couple years earlier, but not much. Um, and I met him first. The first time I met him was at River Sports teaching kayaking sometime in the mid '90s, maybe earlier. Mm-hmm. Hello. And then, hey, what's up? Hey, Philip, you there? I'm here. Welcome to the Hammer so, Factor. Yeah. I'm telling your life story, Philip. You just want to give me a second here. Well, I'll, uh, well, I'll let you, I'll let I you know heard, if I need anything. <clears throat> I heard you. I heard you talking about the '90s. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so Philip drives up in like I guess you're driving like a Model <laughs> T or something, and uh, he had like a bunch of life jackets he was selling. He made himself. Do you remember that? That was at Riversport. I do Philip. remember that. Do you really? Yeah, and, of course. Uh, and uh, he wanted us to carry him in the store there. And uh, I can't remember what we said. I, I didn't really have any power over that decision at the time. But <laughs> did we sell them? Or did we tell you to um, get lost? Well, you're saying we. Well, my father. You know. <laughs> well, I remember, I remember meeting him. And then yeah. I remember meeting, you know, this, uh, you know, this other guy with shabby, shabby looking old dude named John Weld that, like, took yeah, me old dude? to uh, – <laughs> <laughs> took me up to the um to the crow's nest up there and showed me showed me some shorts you were working on yeah i, that, I remember those i remember that do you really huh of course man yeah course. what year did you start what year did you start astral astral yeah or not astral Two. lotus i'm sorry um 1994 yeah so you got us by a couple years we didn't really start earnest like selling stuff to like 97, I think. So before well, maybe you just showed me like the first roll of fabric you had or something. <laughs> I was making sure I was making sure it was like a home sewing machine probably back then. Something uh-huh. like that. Right. But you started like you started the same way though. You were in your, your basement, right? Or how'd you I mean how'd you start Lotus? Like what was the impetus there? 
I did start it in a basement. Yes, I did. I was um, I was going to school at Warren Wilson, and um, I started it in my basement right there in Warren Wilson. No, not yeah. at Warren Wilson. Down the road from Warren Wilson. Um, yeah, it was. I, I hired a, um, a girl that was known for making costumes for the drama club or whatever at at college, and um, she stitched together a, um, a rescue jacket for me. And um, I think it was it was awesome. But yeah, that's that, that's where it started, right there in the basement. So, Philip, off campus. When did you start paddling? Give me a little bit about uh, just when you, how you got into paddling, where you started, and, and that kind of thing. Well, you know, I was um, in high school in Charlotte, and um, I was working. Shit, I don't know how I got into kayaking, but it was in '85 or '86. Um, I was. 14 years old and um <laughs> there was a um there was a club and I joined it and, and um I uh I learned to kayak I, I actually taught myself down in a um down in a pond near my house and um took some took some trips with the uh canoeists Piedmont Paddlers Canoe Club killer and uh yeah man it just uh, went crazy. It went wild from there. And so, what? So that's what. What? What? What made you decide to to make a life jacket in the first place? When, when did that come on your radar? So I was um, at some summer after I think ninety one or ninety two. Um, I was in college and took took a road trip out to uh, out west to paddle and. Um, Paddled in Colorado, made my way up to uh, Ketchum, Idaho, where I live now, actually, and um, and that's when I saw an HF jacket. Um, HF was a um, was a uh, guy named Horst Fürstall that designed out of Germany, and he made these really beautiful, simple, durable uh, life jackets that were just 100% for kayakers. They were short-waisted and burly and uh, simple, and they looked good. It was just like, you know, primary colors, and um, I was just blown away by it. I was like, wow, that is a, a really cool piece of gear that uh, kind of a- amplifies the safety uh, or, or what you can do with a life jacket. You know, I was used to wearing extra sport life jackets, Um which kind of evolved out of the sailing industry, and you know they they just didn't do what a what this rescue jacket uh, from Germany would do. It would kind of allow you to to go help your friends uh, if stuff went sideways, and um, and then I, my friend told me how much he paid for it. It was like two hundred and seventy five dollars, and I mean that was a big big deal back then. I mean life jackets. Normally we're selling for eighty or whatever, so I was like, "Shit, man! I bet I could make that and sell it for two hundred bucks," you know. And um, and so that was really the um, kind of the, the the proverbial light that went off, um, and that's the moment 
that I, I, I got interested in it. Were you thinking business at the time or just like you're just going to make one and just that was maybe just going to be it? Um, you know, I was definitely old enough to, uh, to be thinking about, to be thinking about business. I was 21 or so and, um, trying to figure out, I mean, I was at a liberal arts school, not really knowing where that was leading me. So, um, I was, um, and I knew I had to, you know, I mean, I've been working since I was 14 years old. I enjoy working. And so I was like, well, you know, this is this is my chance right here. You know, this is a, this is a little opportunity, and um, yeah, it turned out well. It was a good, good thing. There was nobody. So else you started. Making. You started. You were in. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, there was no other. Um, I mean, there was extra sport. Like I said, they they were out of Miami. They were they started in sailing world, and then Stolquist was um, way off the map in in Colorado back then you know um colorado was like an isolated little small paddling community um but stolquist existed and and um but it was really just just those two brands and so it was easy to kind of do something that was unique and um and special over in the east coast where there was a lot more paddlers that, that you know identified with the product and wanted to support it and and that was a time when paddling was really increasing in participation as well. There was, you know, a lot of people your age, and maybe a little younger, but specifically, you know, early twenties were coming into the sport and it was really at the first time becoming a sport, really. I mean, it wasn't really a sport before that. Um I don't know. I mean, um yeah. It, it, I guess it did start to gain in popularity around that time. Um, but I remember going to, you know, the Ocoee or to the Gali, and it was, uh, you know, it was still a bit of a buzz over there. People, you know, people were pretty excited about it. And I mean, there was a, I don't know the numbers. I don't really follow them that much, but I, there was a pretty, pretty good paddling community at that time. There was a lot of energy in kayaking. Yeah. You know, that's when the, the rodeo, the, they had, you know, a U.S. rodeo team that was over on the Ocoee, and you know, slalom was big. Davy Hearn and um, John Lugbill and those guys were—they were hot shit, man. They were on the cover of like Wheaties, weren't they, John? Yeah, uh, Lugbill was, yeah. Lugbill, yeah. yeah. So I mean, I don't know. Maybe that was kayaking's golden moment. It was '94? <laughs> you think that was it? That's the high water mark. <laughs> It could have been. <laughs> could have been, man. Like the RPM was probably like in full, full blown production in '94, yep. right? That was I probably so. the peak. I think so. I mean, like I, um, three shifts a day, three molds a day, making RPMs. And then you ended up. You ended up with a bunch of What's that? <laughs> What's that? No, you said That's... you ended up with a bunch of people sewing for you in Weaverville. I remember coming down there and seeing you all down there. Um, yep. Sure did. Yeah, we um, so between '94 and '98, which was my last year with Lotus, um, we grew from just you know myself to um, about 50, 50 workers there at the factory. Right. They were all um, they were all from you know like local people, just mountain mountain folks that have been. Living and you know working in those um, 
in those factories up in that area, you know, forever. Yeah, it was right. pretty special. It was, it was a it was a cool experience. <laughs> and then, uh, and then one day, Yvonne Chenard calls you and says, uh, I, "I want a piece to that." Well, you know, there was there were plenty of other calls prior to um, to Patagonia um, contacting me. There were John. You remember there were. Um, kind of groups out of Atlanta and, you know, maybe New York or Boston or somewhere that um, started to think that paddle sports was a big deal and investment yeah. opportunity. So yeah. actually, you know, actually I got, um, I got hit up by a few of those and it was really easy to, to really not respond. I was, hell, I was whatever, 26, 25, 26 years old, having a good time. Um, <laughs> I, I can see Weld's mouth opening up on the video call here, just fantasizing about the, the VC dollars rolling in. No, well, we, almost, <laughs> we came within, a, we came within a, a, a hair's – I didn't realize how close it was until this summer I talked to fully about this, but very close to getting fired by a dagger slash watermark. Uh-huh. Um, not surprised. Yeah, <laughs> but so yeah, that the was trigger, But Patagonia was the one that that was like that's that's the, that's my peeps. I'm gonna make this happen. Well, well, yeah, yeah. They they really got my attention because um, yeah. I mean, who who better to you know to to entrust your brand with? Um, Absolutely. You know who 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 better to do that? And so certainly they but, they got my they got my ear and. You know, it was a it was a pretty long negotiation, actually. Um, it took about I don't know, almost a year, I think. And um, I pissed them off a few times. They walked away, and but they really wanted to to have a piece of um, to to get into the paddle sports arena. And um, right, they who wouldn't? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, apparently, apparently so. Uh, back then, I mean, back then it looked a lot different, you know. I mean, it was a different, different landscape for sure. Yeah, I guess so. But you made life jackets too, which has a much broader appeal than just paddle sports, you know. Yeah, I've never really gotten outside of paddle sports. I mean, sure, there are uh, other uses for life jackets, but other brands do that really well, like industrial and you know sailing, sailing. and whatnot. Yeah. So, how did you piss them off, Philip? What was going on there? <laughs> well, you know, I. <laughs> Um, they, you know, they, they kind of, when they came to me, they were, they had a, um, they kind of painted this picture where, you know, they were like, wow, we really admire what you guys are doing here. We're going to build a factory with like, you know, a grass roof for birds to nest. And, you know, we're just going to like invest <laughs> in this, but we're going to be completely you know, completely hands off and, and let you guys run it. And, um, I was running it with some friends really. And I mean, it was, it was great. It was going really well. And, um, I was really into that. I was thinking, shit, man, you know, be able to tap into some, to some funds and, you know, some consulting or whatever. And, you know, kind of be a part of, of Patagonia. That'll be really you know, neat. It'll be like a little independent autonomous, um, division of Patagonia that was their original intention and then over time I think through um 
maybe once they looked at the numbers and um, kind of some of the behind the scenes components of it, they were like, well, we're going to put our people in there and, um, you know, you're going to work for us. And I was like, well, you know, that, you know, screw off. That's not, you know, that's just not how, what I want to do. I'm, I'm young and, you know, we're having a good time at this. And so they, they, they went away for a while and, um, and they came back and they just changed their story. They're like, well, we want all of it. And, you know, you can stay or you can go. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's, in, that's what ended up happening is they essentially, they made, they made me an offer that it was really hard to, uh, to walk away from. Um, so I took it and I took, you know, three years, took three years off. They, 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 a, a part of the sale was to, um, to be out of the market for three years. So I did that. I mean, three and, years, I mean, those, to, almost to the minute. To the minute. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it was literally to the minute. Yeah. Yeah. And, so, and I mean, that was, that was, that was wonderful. Sure, that's what I'm getting at, right? This is what I love to say, man, because you, you and like three other people that I could think of, Chan, Swanzig from Wasteport, uh, Joe Pulliam, you got out of Shawshank. You got out. <laughs> <laughs> you came back in. You're like knocking at the gate three years later. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it seemed like you couldn't even wait to get back in. You were, well, like, I had some, I had some you were like looking over the fence a couple months before. Man. I had to come rescue you, John. You know, yeah. a... <laughs> well, waiting. I'm still here. <laughs> I hear you. I've been trying to hear you. Here. So, then, so, so then three wait, years to the day. Sport. But passports yep. was so boring that you felt you had to come back in. I mean, did you feel like Patagonia wasn't? I mean, what was the? I mean, why? What? I mean, what was the thinking there? Well, there was a couple things. There was, um, you know, I took a couple years off and you know moved out west and um, really got into kind of moved away from paddling a bit and really got into like snowboarding and kind of high mountain living and, um, really enjoyed that. And, and then I realized that, um, situation out West is kind of weird with water and land and stuff and started to miss the East coast and all the, um, you know, all the water and, and, um, and whatnot. So I moved back to Asheville and, um, we bought a, a really sweet kind of farm. It was about 80 acres, um, in, Southeast Buncombe County on the headwaters of the Rocky Broad. And, um, you know, I was super, super happy, um, being a, being a farmer, I had a dream. I was going to, you know, just have this community supported agriculture farm. And, you know, we were just going to be really good at, you know, growing blueberries and, you know, chickens and flowers or whatever. I came down there once. (laughs) You're like in Black Mountain, right? And you guys had like a gigantic dog. And like some dude living out in a shack somewhere, like kind of off, off, <laughs> off property. Yeah, <laughs> who was that guy? <laughs> that might that might have been Bakta. Yeah, that sounds right. It was kind of a cool scene, but it was definitely a scene. <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit of a little bit of a commune out there. It was uh, <laughs> it was cool. It was those were good days. But um, you know, I was I was watching, you know, what Patagonia was doing with Lotus and I was disappointed with uh, the fact that they were still, um, 
they were still doing some things environment like when I sold Lotus I mean my environmentalism goes way back to being a teenager and actually you know by by, by listening to Patagonia and um, Yvonne Chouinard and you know um, being a member of you know some um, kind of radical environmental groups in high school and, and in college and stuff and um, and so I was disappointed that Patagonia didn't take some steps that um, that I really thought they would and that they, they they said they were going to specifically the use of PVC was um, still in effect and there was no uh, apparent you know movement away from it and um, that bothered me you know I was just kind of bothered by that irritated um, so I knew that there was some work to do there that could be done um, on the environmental side, and um, so that kind of gave me some a little bit of a little bit of fire to get back. And then, you know, when I was just kind of an- looking at being a farmer versus being, you know, getting back into the outdoor business, you know, I thought I could have a more of an impact by um, by getting back in the outdoor business. Um, but interestingly, I still. You know, I, I still yearn for farming. I, I, I love agriculture. You know, it's something that I, when I started Astral, I, you know, a mission statement says that, you know, over time, I hope that, um, you know, Astral will be responsible for the clean, the cleaning up of a lot of soil and, and water that's related to, to agriculture. So, you know, that's kind of a long-term vision that that Astral is kind of unfolding, beginning to unfold now. But, um, yeah, we're in it, in it for the long term and and really for the – a lot of it's for the environmental, you know, stuff that, that I can do with with my career. You know, it's like kind of gives gives a purpose to what we're doing. And so, and so Astral, Astral so really he, took off. I You know, I had a chance to – to, to play with some of those super early PFDs and mm-hmm. and uh, obviously there was a progression to lighter, better fitting. A lot a lot of innovation was going on there at Astral in a, in a pretty quick time. And then mm-hmm. what was it? Two years ago, the jump into footwear was that something? Um, was that something that you, ha- you always had in the back of your head? What brought that on? Yeah, actually, it was. I mean. I've always been a bit of a, um, you know, uh, I've always loved shoes. I mean, I, some. I mean, I remember sleeping with a pair of Nikes um, back when I was like, you know, nine years old. Like, I've, I've always <laughs> really liked shoes, you know. Huh. And um, as a, as a, it's kind of weird, right? But as a, um, <laughs> but as a paddler, we've seen we've seen a lot of strange um, trends in footwear. I mean, when I got into into kayaking everybody was wearing chucks you know within two or three years um everybody was wearing these freaking ridiculous uh plastic sandals called augs you know and that was um in trend for a while and then you know it went to alps sandals um you know teva came in um eventually you know booties have always been there um and then keen with their you know strange shaped um 
you know, shoes came in. And, and so it's always, kayaking has always had this strange footwear um, that's a part of it. And I always thought there was an opportunity there as a designer. I was like, I just always saw opportunity to do something uh, that <clears throat> was just more appealing um, to the eye, but, but, but had a good functionality that it has to have, you know, to be a good kayak and shoe. So yeah, um, the, the, the passion for, for shoes was there when I met a guy, um, uh, he had been working for Solomon for seven years over in France. Uh, he's a fellow, you know, North Carolinian, um, came into my office and, you know, he was like, look, I think, you know, I could help you to do this. And really on that day, I, when I, I said, I was like, man, I fully agree with you. Um, that was back in 07, I think, or 08. Um, I said, I fully agree with you. And when I, you know, get over the hump with these life jackets, you know, I would love to, uh, to collaborate. So in, um, I guess it was in 2009. Who was that, Philip? Is when, uh, Reglan Brewer. Okay. I, I yeah. knew that. So I just wanted our viewers to know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so it was around 2009 that Reglan and I really had that first real conversation about what astral footwear you know, would look like. And by 2013, um, you know, we had our first shoe, and it was, it was called the Brewer. Hell yeah. And so, it's, yeah. you know, building a life jacket is, is pretty technical. And mm -hmm. how does that cross over into building footwear? Is it a, is footwear less challenging, more challenging? What's, give me, give me the, uh, what's going yeah, on behind are, the scenes. Shoes are easy. <laughs> Any fool can make a shoe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they're, um, they're really not that far apart you know life jackets um basically you're you're taking a fabric and foam um you know concoction and you're and you're anchoring it to a bony part of your body are you guys there yeah we're here oh hell that's Dr. christy trying to ch chime in um mm. we can bring um, her on if you want <laughs> no nah, she's She's trying to talk budget or something. So um, that could be fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, so basically anchoring a fabric and foam to your body, you know, in a way that that fits and um, and, and performs. Um, basically, just applying that same type of analysis to the foot um, was not that big of a um, of a jump, really. Yeah, but you got to yeah. see. The, for, for me, though, who has some experience in manufacturing, like I look at that, I'm like, you got to glue something. You know what I mean? And as soon as you start gluing anything, it's 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 an issue. You know what I mean? Well, it's a gigantic, you know, technical, it, complicated it, issue. Well, know? and I think that um, that kind of alludes Especially, to one of my one of my original design intentions, which was I didn't want to glue anything. I told Reglan, I was like, dude, we're not going to use glue. He's like fuck off we can't do that i was like no we, we got to stitch it uh we got to stitch it together and um so you know our first shoes if i showed you our prototypes they were completely stitched the rubber was stitched you know to the uh you know to the upper and um 
they were they were pretty crazy looking actually. But um, now you know, over time we've we're doing more gluing. Um, but I think you know, stitching. Any, anyway, I agree with you, John, that uh, gluing gluing sucks, and um, I, I always try to re- to reduce the the amount of glue that that, that we use in shoes. Where were we? So you start up, you start up Astral and, you know, when you had Lotus, you know, Lotus in some ways looked like IR, you know, we had a crusoers at our place too. Mm-hmm. Um, and while you were out, we started moving stuff offshore actually with the help of a quaint, mutual acquaintance of ours, Bob holding, he, uh, got us into the Patagonia factory or one of the Patagonia mm-hmm. factories where in fact they were making Lotus paddle sports gear. So while you were, while you were, taking your uh, sabbatical right. watching that stuff get made it was kind of crazy to see that but um, we started outsourcing stuff at that point mostly for you know, we just couldn't keep up with production and you know it's, it's tough to run a sewing factory as you know um, and do something else at the same time right um, right you know I mean there's a myriad of issues but you start outsourcing production um, that's a big that's a big learning curve I mean did you find it as challenging as, as we did and what made you think you're going to do it overseas rather than do it back in Weaverville? Well, you know, Astral was, um, um, we were making all of our life jackets in, in Asheville um, until it became impossible, actually, to, to make money, um, to, to survive. Um, I mean, we really gave it our best, our best shot, and... You know, there was just a limit to what consumers are willing to pay um, for a life jacket. You know, when Stolquist and Cocotad and, um, you know, Extra Sport or MTI, when everybody's making their jackets overseas and you're the only guy, you know, paying U.S. wages, uh, we just couldn't, couldn't make it happen. So there was just, it was a survival uh, move that, 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 that took us there actually. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I wasn't happy with it. I, um, um, and, and I actually kind of left with, with the factory. I, I moved in 2009, I guess we made that decision to, to move our PFD manufacturing, uh, to Asia in, I don't know, 2007, I think. And by 2009, um, I went there. I moved. I moved over to Asia with my family, and you know the reason for that was to was to be near the factory and and really understand and see, um, with, you know how how our stuff is made and certain things are done. And um, so that's how I approached it. Very very hands on. I wasn't willing to just, you know, have an agent handle it, yeah. Um, which is which is what most people do. Very interesting. So you you decided to take your operation and have your finger on the entire production process over there. Yep. Yeah. And were you in the factory every day? Was the factory doing runs of the PFDs and then there would be a period to where nothing was being produced? Or were you literally going five days a week into the factory? Well, you know, the PFD factory is a little different. It's up in it's up in China and they um they really have 
um, a great system, and it and it was easy for me to see that those that factory was better than any factory that I could run um, in America. I mean, it was really very well run, um, and um, and allowed me actually to focus on the development of of uh, shoes of the footwear side of the business. Uh, I really entrusted that factory in China to do it. And they're still our partner and they're amazing. Um, yeah, they can build life jackets um, much better actually than we could in, in Asheville, just to be frank. Um, <clears throat> um, and then the footwear, but the footwear thing, yeah, for, for the last, from the beginning, I've been involved every step of the way with that. And, and where are the shoes to the made? point of Shoes are made in, in Vietnam. Okay. And um, just outside of Ho Chi Minh City. And, um, you know, up until you know, seven or eight months ago, I was there, um, you know, most of the, most of the year. And, um, yeah, I was in the factory all the time. We have an office in the factory and so fully, fully integrated into it. Which is important. Important. So what's so what's, what's the strategy for uh, this new administration in terms of imports and, and that kind of thing? And what are you what are you thinking? Or anything at all? Are you just sort of waiting and seeing what's going to go down? <laughs> <laughs> this is a personal question for me on, too. Let's hear, <laughs> let's hear it from both you guys. I'm super interested in this. I mean, I. Um... I'm kind of assuming status quo on that, um, John. I um, I don't see. I mean, I I would seriously doubt that uh, that administration is going to shut down or you know so heavily in, uh, tax imports from Vietnam or China on shoes and life jackets that um, it would um, force us to 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 come back. Um, I wouldn't mind um, if it happens. Um, I'm not saying that it would be a terrible thing. Um, I really enjoy making stuff in America. Um, a piece of that is Americans being willing to pay the price to pay Americans uh, to do the work. Yeah. Um, I think that's kind of the, the root of the, of the issue. Um, and probably the reason that those those things can't come back here is because it's been proven that Americans aren't willing to pay um, Americans to, to make stuff for them anymore. What, what so, do you think, Mr. Weld? I guess it's a similar similar sentiment. I mean, for us, it's not so much money. You know, it's not a financial issue. I mean, Cocotat is, you know, makes dry suits in California, um, and for us, you know, majority. Like you look at a thousand dollar dry suit, a huge portion of that is the materials. You know, the labor is certainly part of it. But, you know, I mean, the thing for us is that, you know, we make shorts, we make rash guards, we make, you know, neoprene stuffs, spray skirts, we make dry tops, we make dry suits. You need a production line for each one of those, a certain set of machines. And, you know, it's not really reasonable for us to own a million dollars worth of machinery and have 80 people come in and run that production line for a couple of weeks and then lay them off. You know what I mean? Um, what you do is you, you send that production out to somebody who makes rash cards. You send that production out to somebody who makes, 
you know, jackets. You know, it's called contract sewing. That's the business we're in. Um, but there's no contract sewing in the U.S. You know what I mean? I'd love for stuff to come back to the States. I don't think it would be a huge increase in price at all for us, at least for a lot of the products we make. But there's no, there's no one here who does it, you know? And paddle sports um, can't support that you know there'd have to be many many well, industries come on board before you could get that well i think we'd, we'd find a jacket we find a, a factory that makes rainwear in the united states for instance and piggyback on them and make make dry tops there you know what i mean that work out fine for us but there's just no one here to do it i don't think i think philip's right i don't think i can't conceive of how that's going to change because there's not a person in this country who, who can't reach out and touch something that wasn't made overseas you know mm-hmm. um well, but I don't know. I mentioned with Philip because in some ways we're in the same – we have a similar trajectory in terms of production and stuff like that, where we came from. Um, mm-hmm. And it's always a, a bit of a sore subject for me because I, I think Philip – I don't know, Philip, you can correct me on this, but I feel like we get villainized sometimes for the decisions we made, um, which are by and large completely out of our control. You, you know what I mean? They have really nothing to do with us. You know, We're just playing by the rules set out before us. You know, um, I mean, Philip, do you think I have that – Am I misinterpreting your situation? Um, yeah, I don't feel uh, villainized. No, I've never felt villainized. Um, I don't think villainized is the right word, but I do get people who, who who criticize us for not making stuff domestic, or they'll call us and be like, where's your stuff made? And if I tell them it's overseas, that's kind of the end of the phone call. Right. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I guess I'm in a situation where there's, you know, there are no manufacturers that are domestic in life jackets and <laughs> Um, in footwear, <clears throat> you know, they're very, very, I mean, I don't know of any, I, I mean, I know that new balance claims, I mean, I think 20% of their production is some of it's done in the, in the U S keen, I think, uh, make some claims to, uh, make, or they do uh, make some product in Portland, but it's more work boot kind of product, I think. Um, but you know, I do like the challenge. I would, um, um, I would love to manufacture something again in the U.S. and it, would it pushes, you? I mean, would you? In your mind, would you run the factory? Or would you send that that work out to somebody else who's already making a similar product? Well, I would want Astral. I would want Astral to do it. I wouldn't contract it out because I don't. We can't afford that layer of, you know, um, right. that paying that extra middle, you yeah. know, middleman uh, to do it. I don't think so. Um, we would have to do it ourselves. But it, it, you know, it forces you as as a designer to, you know, to build some to design something that is, you know, doesn't require much, um, you know, labor is such a high high factor in America. The cost of labor is so high that you know you can design a shoe or a life jacket that doesn't require much labor. Um, right. You know, then, you know, it's possible, but you also kind of kill the the point of doing it in America, which is to, you know, give, you know, your fellow Americans jobs and stuff like that. So yeah. <laughs> it's well, kind of a catch 22. Well, I've certainly enjoyed, uh, seeing the progression of Astral and it's an awesome story that you've got uh, with Lotus. And I want to hear where, where you see the footwear business going. I noticed that you've uh, just launched a a uh, more trail running oriented um, shoe. But before I get into that, there was this life jacket. It was a prototype a long time ago. And it had this strapping system where you pulled on the strap and it was basically one strap that weaved and wrapped around the whole jacket. And it was, it seemed awesome. Whatever happened to that concept? Do you know what I'm talking I about? Have <laughs> I have one of those. It's a blue one. 
<laughs> my basement. I still got it too. It's killer. See? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Johnson. Johnson um, shut that down. That jacket. Uh, Johnson infringed shut it down. on a. Action. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, 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 oh. Um, Apparently, um, <laughs> Eric Johnson. <laughs> oh, like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was um, uh, there was a claim from from their side that that jacket infringed on a patent that they had, and um, I was advised, you know, originally that there was actually, you know, absolutely no uh, problem with our design, and then when um, when they pushed the case, you know, it just turned out that uh that their lawyers were really really good and and that was kind of the first and only time i've ever had to deal with something like that but um yeah the net result was that um we had to discontinue the you know the the use of that design well i got uh, i mean yeah you got one that's cool (laughs) i'm gonna ebay that thing now Yeah, it was called the Z strap. Yeah, Z-strap. That's, that's right. That's right. The Z strap. Right. Yeah, yeah, it worked. It worked really well. Um, anyway, I don't want to talk too much about that. So anyway, Astro Footwear new running shoe. Tell us uh, what's going on. What's what, what are we looking? Well, at? it's not a running shoe. It's not at all a running shoe. It looks like a bit like a running shoe. It's got some inspiration from that, but it's a it's a walking shoe. I mean, it's a uh, we call them trail shoes. It's it's really a light hiker, you know. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the reason that we did that is because, um, you know, we realized like our first focus was shoes that work really well down in the gorge, like in the bottom of the river and, you know, on the rocks and the, and the bank, um, in the river. And, and then we realized shit, man, like these trails in and out of these places are sometimes, you know, brutal, treacherous, you know, um, it, you know, we need a better shoe for the, the path between the river and our car. And so, um, we've just evolved into trail shoes. Um, and that's what you see. That's what you see there is, uh, some really, some really good trail shoes. And the interesting thing is they evolve from the river kind of, um, a lot of the, trail shoes on the market have started in mountaineering you know um started with leather heavy leather boots for mountaineering and stuff and <clears throat> and then they kind of get ground down you know down to a lighter and lighter uh shoe that you see today but for us you know we came from the river and and and, and made a trail shoe and it's we have a, a interest a different approach because of that i think you know, grip and balance and mm-hmm. all that stuff. So. so, so how are you capitalizing on the booming SUP market? Have you staked your your <laughs> your ground there yet, or what's the strategy? <laughs> I don't know. I, that's uh, you know, I, I I consult with you about that. <laughs> you don't want to consult with me on that. <laughs> well, to sure that Whitewater SUP is the next big thing. So. <laughs> Well, it is for me. I I, I actually really enjoy it. Me I, too. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. and I I, av- I avoided it um, until last summer, and and um, last summer I loved it. I mean, it was like that's because you, know, you hate a, kayaking. 
<laughs> well, I mean, I don't hate kayaking. I'm just scared of, scared to kayak. So um, we, we should go on an SUP trip up to Confluence, Philip. See if right. we can get welled out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Loop. Well, you guys should come out um, come out here this summer. It's going to be huge. Oh man, yeah. it's going to be huge. Oh man, Philip. I know. Uh, I know John Weld's favorite conversation is anything that starts with, "Hey, you know what you guys should make." Mm. <laughs> so a skirt, <laughs> so a skirt in, with a rope pocket. <laughs> so in, in a similar spirit, I got a question for you or an idea to pitch you. Okay, here we, we go. Think, cool. We see uh, <laughs> big wave surfing now. These guys, a lot of these guys have these uh, like rapid inflation life jackets. They like pull a little rip cord and it goes from like nothing to the size of like a normal life jacket. Yep. You know, I know that same technology or something similar is out there for avalanche airbags. Um, what do you think about having something like that incorporated into normal whitewater life jackets? So you could like double or triple the flotation that you had for kind of like a flush drowning scenario, like something like, you know, like a life jacket that you would have, just for like high water north fork of the payad or yeah or something like that obviously be like super super small market but it seems like the technology already exists and it could definitely be a lifesaver in the right circumstances there you go totally yeah man it's um um it's a pretty obvious need um it's a it'd be a great product and actually um Actually, we created it back in 2007, um, and it was a jacket that we call the hybrid. And um, we tried to make them in the States and, and couldn't. So um, actually, we have a – anyway, um, we have something coming for you. That, Sick. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are you going to pay Lewis a commission on that, or how's that going to Philip, you have <laughs> it's something that um yeah it's i I'm, I'm really excited about it because it makes so much sense the versatility of of that product is is amazing and uh there's a, definitely a need for it i mean i was listening to can you have um, a lower you, than standard flotation in that jacket uh and still pass coast guard approval if it if it has the potential to inflate to coast guard levels See that's the thing. That's the thing. You can. There's a um, and we have approval. We already have the jacket approved. It's um, it's got eight pounds of buoyancy by foam, and that's half of um, like a normal, you know, a foam-filled life jacket, which is fifteen and a half or sixteen. So it's um, the what they call inherently buoyant uh, component. The foam component has to be eight pounds. And then, um, so ours is uh, eight pounds of foam, and the inflatable component adds about 15 pounds. Oh, super cool. So, yeah. So would you so say that eight. we had a scoop on this product? Would you say that? <laughs> we well, I mean. You heard it here first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have a knack for pitching products that already exist. <laughs> I like, once had logic one day, and I, I told Jane about this boat that I was like, I had like this like fantasy or this kayak that I wanted. 
and Shane's just kind of like, he's kind of like smirking at me and he's like, all right, come in the back. And he like shows me the plug for the brap. <laughs> like, like awesome nice. for guys. <laughs> so Philip Curry, you go back, you go back 15 years, let's say to when you're just between Lotus and Astral, you could do, you could have one piece of advice or change something. What, what would it be? Oh, geez. Hot um, I'm not going to ask you what your favorite is. I'll spare you that one. Um, 15 years ago, one bit of advice, um, Jesus, John, <laughs> hot seat, hot seat, hot seat. I mean, that's like, look, that's, that's looking back, man. I don't do that very often. Um, I don't know, like make sure that, you know, keep oil in your tractor. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're kind of running out of time here, Philip. When are we going to see Astral Farms pop up? Pretty soon. Pretty soon. We have a um, we have a shoe now that's made from hemp. Um, so that's uh, huge for us. I'm so excited. Yeah. So we we're making a shoe out of hemp. It's well, do you have any awesome. products in the pipeline? You can make salmon and well, Philip Philip Curry and I are going to announce a, a joint product. I think at some point here. I've been, I've been pestering about for years. What? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, but I'm not sure if I'm ready to release it yet. Well, and I'm working on one with Brent Toper also. Brent Toper? Yes. Really? I could only imagine what that might be. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, indeed. Wait for it. I'm, I, I can't wait. Is this something going to release it out to a retailer? Or? <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe. Another venue of sorts. <laughs> okay, guys, we got to move on. All here. right, boys. Hang on, Philip. Right. Hang on, Philip. You're, you're, you're in on this last little bit. We gotta, this is kind of our, everybody's favorite uh, part of the show here. We do some rants and raves. Um, so you can either pick a rant, something you want to uh, rant on, or something that you're totally into and want to rave about. Philip, anything pop pop in your head? Well, I really like this um, Grace and Weld show. <laughs> I really like the uh, sort of the tough guy, sweet guy approach. I got an email. Good <laughs> cop, bad cop. <laughs> I, got, I got an email. It was like... Quit being a dick and talk to us. <laughs> and that was from Mr. Weld. And then like two or three days later, I get you know, one from Mr. Grace that says, he didn't really mean that. <laughs> Would you please talk to us? I thought that was pretty awesome. I really like I, I really like the Grace and Weld show. I think you should change yeah. the name to that. Right. Well, we got Geltman on here, and he seems to be getting all the viewer mail recently. So <laughs> nice. Right. Uh, well, no, this Lewis, is cool. Thanks, guys. Hang on, you're not off yet, Philip. Weld, Lewis, you got any uh, rants, raves? God, I had a rant. Um. Shoot, I, I don't know, Geltman. What do you got? I, I can't even prepare this week. Um, yeah, I'm pretty unprepared also, but I, as usual. Well, I got a, I got a rave. I would say, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I can sorry. always give you the impromptu rave, which is uh, the New Yorker. I'm like, I'm over talking about kayaking. I don't know why we do this every week. I don't know if anybody really listens or not. I, I can't believe that everybody's not sick of talking about kayaking. But the New Yorker, <laughs> man, it's like my little, like, 
dose of culture here in the Columbia River Gorge. There's nothing in there about kayaking. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah to Check it out. I think we're the only <laughs> nice. two people listening to the show. That we're... <laughs> John, John, you're a smart yeah. guy out of the um, out of the out of the capital, and I'm I'm curious, um, what is the the best source for news these days? I, I mean, read. Uh, I read every morning. I read the New York Times and I read the Wall Street Journal, and then I also subscribe to Tegan Goddard's uh, Political Wire, and then I read Chris Zilla's blog, this guy from the Washington Post, and then I read uh, Politico. Okay. I just scan through it. Sounds good. I, I, I could rant about Chris Zilla, but I won't. <laughs> yeah. Cool. I, I, you take him for what he is. You have to take him in with everybody else. I'm pretty involved, though. I can't get enough of it. My, my favorite podcast these days, besides the obvious, of course, is uh, uh, Tony Kornheiser show. Do you guys remember Tony Kornheiser? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. I've listened to some My Tony dad Kornheiser. loves that. And Saliza yeah. uh, is on Tony Kornheiser's podcast, and like he is just like, you know, he'll get these like obvious softball policy questions or just sort of about, you know, what's going on in the world. And he is like incapable of having the most basic substantive conversation about anything that's going on in the world. All he knows about is like the political horse race. And it's like, to me, it's like the absolute epitome of like the worst of political journalism. It drives me nuts. But anyway, I'm sure that's going to be super relevant for a lot of people. listening. (laughs) (laughs) All right, boys, Philip, thank you so much for coming on the show. Looking forward to see, uh, all right. Thanks, Philip. See what Astro has. And, uh, we'll call that a wrap. Thanks, Lewis. Thanks, John. And we will see you next week. Remember to subscribe to our podcast, send us a viewer mail if you like us. And thanks for listening.